Good evening and welcome to Point of View. I'm Chris Berg. Thank you so much for joining us. Earlier today, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum released his executive budget for the upcoming legislative session. I've said before, get your popcorn for the upcoming session. Going to be fascinating to watch. And earlier today, I had a chance to sit down and visit with our great Lieutenant Governor, Brent Sanford, to get his take uh, on this budget and what it means for the people of North Dakota. Lieutenant Governor, welcome back to Point of View. Always great to have you. Governor Burgum gave his uh, executive budget proposal earlier today. As we've been going through this COVID, you hear so much about, you know, unemployment, oil uh, prices way, way down, just the challenges that have been taking place over the last eight, nine months. I'm curious, and you're a CPA, former mayor, as you guys sat down to put this budget together, what, what was the most important thing you focused on and why? Well, the most important thing was make sure that our general fund revenues were tracking and they have been as, as you've seen with the last the last revenues report from omb uh we are we're actually ahead of schedule for those general fund revenues which is amazing to think of where that sales tax would be there income tax would be there all the different fees would be there um so that's the most important part that really drives that general fund spending but then for all the investing accounts such as for water and all the long-term uh, funding accounts that we need that we need fully stocked for education, et cetera. The, the oil tax revenues become extremely important as well. Lucky for us, we're not completely dependent on oil tax revenues. Some other states are more dependent than us, and we're not as much. However, if you have a, a large water project or if you're very reliant on on um, um, oil tax dollars for research and development or for education, that that becomes a concern. So what you're what you're able to see is is a very balanced budget. Uh, very similar to level to last biennium, ironically, with with us expecting four to five billion dollars of oil revenues for this current biennium that was adjusted down to 3.2 billion or so, and we're only expecting 2.8 billion for next biennium. So we're still able to keep that general fund spending very close to what it's been. Um, you know, some minuses, some pluses, but but very similar to where it was. But that that oil tax revenue that that's going to be the challenge for for issues like infrastructure spending and keeping those K-12 trust fund accounts stocked. Can you say legacy fund? Yeah. <laughs> um, and we'll get to that in a moment. But, you know, I think what's fascinating is the fact that, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys actually lowered the general fund um, spending, correct? Right. And that's that's through the strategic review process and the governor being a fiscal conservative. I mean, he always sees that there's a chance to zero budget to go down to why are you spending any money at all? Don't just justify you what you've done and tell me you need five percent raises for everyone and five percent more for your programs and we'll be good. You have to explain the entirety of what what process is happening. So there were 300 million plus of, of savings identified and reprioritizations and then and then some new prioritizations of 100 million or so but overall yes we decreased that general fund spending again like we did last time and and then when you have when you have you have to respect employees i mean we've all been there we need you need to have that cost of living raise so you have to have employee raises and there's some federal programs that have that have funding requirements that have inflationary raises so that's called the cost to carry items and those add up to 100 million or so at least you know, so it's really hard to keep that budget balanced. And the governor made a sentence, said a sentence about that in his presentation. It's really hard to just be flat because you have some of that inflationary stuff that's going to be there regardless. But despite that, we went down in the general fund spend. And that, that's more of, of the, the fact that we are down in, in oil revenues so much. And to keep those sales tax and income tax revenues where they have been is going to be a challenge unless we see something happen in that oil market and bring us back to where, we, where we'd expect that, the production to be. 
one of the things I appreciated when Governor Burgum sort of was using the farmer's analogy by saying, hey, you know, you, you put inputs in, you want to see what that ROI is going to be. So I'm going to ask you a couple of things yeah. here and if you can just take them one at a time. That would be fantastic because I think many people have this question. We spend so much money. I think he said today that 82% of our general fund goes to either education or health and human services. So I want to start with the education part first. Uh, we look at K through 12. We spend a lot of money per pupil. I mean, over $10,000 per pupil. And if we want to get even more specific on inputs versus outputs, we've seen enrollment go down 12% here in North Dakota, but appropriations up 16%. So if you yep. can start with a K through 12 and then go to higher ed, I want to know from you, we're putting a lot of money in there. What's the ROI? Well, our, I mean, the children are a future. The governor stated that pretty succinctly, succinctly too and during his presentation. And we all know that as parents. And we wasn't that long ago we were we were children ourselves. And I mean, the thing about this is, is that I remember the days when our teachers were paid 47th, 48th, 49th in the nation. And 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 as the Bakken increased and the and the revenues increased and we put more and more of a state share to that K-12 funding at a local level that the teacher pay is now in the teens, I believe, is the last I saw. And so so if we have to have we have to have high quality professionals that are interested in joining the teaching profession and, and when when the when the wages are near the bottom, it doesn't show that level of respect to, to bring the to bring the quality of, of educator into this into the into the field. And and so that that's one thing you note. But um, the, the, the thing the governor is trying to point out is that this budget looks like a hold even if you're in the K-12 side with 10,000 per student. But what it's representing is 38% of our general fund where last time it was 33%. So as the revenues are shrinking and we still hold that bar for K-12 funding, that's, that's actually you know, a higher percentage. But, but what that does, Chris, is it holds down the property tax at the local level. And, and we hear so much of that concern statewide of our local property taxes. So we don't do a good enough job of calling this generous K-12 funding that we do, 38% of our general fund is property tax relief, but but that's what it is. It's, it's truly local property tax relief. Which then I think you can make the argument that let's hold the feet to the fire more for the locals. As you know, as a former mayor, I think many communities could do but But I guess what I'm getting at is that when we talk about ROI, one thing that people may look at with youth is go, okay, so how are we doing as far as AT, ACT scores, annual yearly progress reports? And if I remember correctly, oftentimes you see um, many people within our education system not overperforming from an educational standpoint. I guess, so how would you talk about an ROI when it comes to educational dollars? And are well, we doing a job in the, in the K through 12 system educating the kids? Yeah, we feel that our system is educating very well. We're not falling behind as a state, even through the pandemic. So that's important to keep that in mind as well. And that and that's something that is brought up as the legislators know they're being generous with those with those general fund dollars to K-12. And so we want to make sure we get results. So if you pivot to higher ed, look at that decline in number of students from 38,000 down to 33,000 students in higher ed. And so it feels like a large decrease in proposed to 510 million from 614 million. But but if you're if you're reducing the number of students by 15 percent, shouldn't the funding also decrease by 15 percent? So that's kind of the logic, you know, but it's it's going to be this is one where we know there are going to be people that will be upset. And this is going to be one of those, um, you know, where the governor points out constantly. This is something where we're in, we're in an Amazon world and we have a Barnes and Noble type of type of method of delivery in higher ed and and i've got a i've got a freshman daughter at ndsu and i tell you what she wonders if any of these freshmen are going to come back for the second semester you know with the COVID challenges it's something where higher ed 
has been under challenge with the online options has to begin with and now they're all taking school online so there are going to be a lot of challenges for how how that investment that that dollar investment for the parents for the families for the students how that roi is there for them but we all know that workforce is constantly one of our largest challenges in this state with 760,000 people and as much industry and activities we have we're constantly trying to recruit in more people so thing I always say to employers is the workforce development is the most important for us to think think about our own 18 year olds our own 14 year olds 12 year olds what would we what could we do for them to want to stay here so well, the governor also put in a legacy fund proposal for career academies once again to make sure that we're teaching the science and the and the and the technologies and, and engineering and encouraging those types of fields here and to keep the kids here and, and take advantage of the wonderful opportunities we have with technology, ag, and energy. You, you just hit on it because I, I can hear our audience, Lieutenant Governor, going, hey, we're spending all this money in higher ed. We're seeing appropriations go up and Roman go down. And yet many people are at home going, yeah. And then all of a sudden what happens is what do we do? These kids graduate from NDSU, UND, and they go right back to Minnesota or Iowa or whatnot. And here we are subsidizing their education why are we doing that? Well, a lot of those kids stay, Chris. I, I, there's, we all know kids that we went to college with that I went to college with at UND that were from another state that ended up staying in North Dakota. And even if they stay here for a few years, you have a chance to keep them. I hear of stories of young nurses that are in other parts of the, of the when we're doing Main Street Initiative visits, nurses will graduate from a four-year school. They'll stay in that community for a few years. Oftentimes they've gotten a scholarship from someone locally and then and then they'll, they'll complain that, you know, there's so much more to do in Fargo or more, so much more to do in Minneapolis or Billings or Denver, or you name it, another metro area, another state. And so that, that's our job to really try to keep them once we have them. And so if you've got, if you've got a, you know, whatever it is, 20%, 30% of the kids that are at our higher ed institutes are here. They're here because it's affordable and good quality education. We've got a chance to keep them here. So that, that's our job to sell our communities, sell our industries, sell the opportunities, sell North Dakota. Let's talk about this. This is one thing that there was a, it was a big talking point when Obamacare came out regarding Medicaid expansion. And then when Governor Bergen put this up today in his presentation, I was like, whoa, I had no idea. So if you can explain this to our audience and what you're doing to help mitigate this. And just if you, if you don't mind, sir, share what are these numbers saying exactly? And then he said today, we're going to bring these back more in line with other states. So what's happening here with the Medicaid expansion? So that says it all, but with Medicaid expansion, you can see 22,500 North Dakotans have taken part in this, in this time period where this is being measured. And, and, and why do we pay the highest rate? Well, it was, it's kind of in the spirit of the frontier amendments, I would say, if you're following politics back a decade or so or more, where they're, you look at those other states, Montana, Minnesota, Alaska, they're trying to make sure that we're competitive and we're keeping we're keeping money going to the critical access hospitals or keeping money going to the rural hospitals. But what's happened is, is that rate is so much higher than what the traditional Medicaid reimbursement is. It's higher than what the Medicare reimbursement is by so far, in some cases, double of what those reimbursements are that, that the hospitals do, you know, receive those revenues from the feds on those other programs. And so why is this one so much more? I mean, it's just a component of the Medicaid expansion. And so it's something where we, when we're looking to save general fund dollars for us to save the 15 to 20 million dollars or however much is saved in that in that environment um the the criticism is that it's matched at the federal level when they started medicaid expansion it was i believe it was 100 federal yeah. so of course you just do it but there were a lot of people that said it's a slippery slope it's going to become 90 percent federal and 80 percent federal etc and we're at we're truly at 90 percent federal now so 10 percent of that bill is ours the argument is 
so we won't spend 16 million to bring in 140 or 50 million of federal money that's the argument that's the argument that we'll have to that we'll have to wage again of if of talking about do we want to be the highest re, the highest reimbursement medicaid state like that yeah. it seems like it doesn't really make a lot of sense from where our politics for our state come from but on the other hand it's 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 money that goes directly to hospitals and in this environment they're they're you know they've got a lot of challenges from covid so it's well, something that's fiscally responsible it's something that's a question at the federal level it's amazing the federal level would allow that to happen to have that much discrepancy but it's the way it is yeah and it's gonna be fascinating to see how the hospitals respond especially in the more rural areas a couple more things i want to have you share sir and talk about is this is um i i think this is a great idea but if you can help explain it to us like i'm a fifth grader so there's a revolving fund now utilizing legacy fund earnings. Am I fairly accurate in that assessment? And what is it going to do? Right. So when you talk to mayors, when you talk to local leaders, the, the thing they need most to get projects done, to get those streets redone, to get the water projects done that are not, that don't have other specific projects, they run out of funds. They don't have the ability to borrow. They don't have flexible bonding programs, borrowing programs. And we have some great programs. We do, we do a lot of bonding in public and affordable housing. We do a lot of bonding with clean drinking water and uh, drinking water for, for sewer and water, basically lagoons and water towers and associated piping. We've got federal funds that we have state revolving loan funds that are 20 year amortization, one to 2% that people love to use those. But if you don't have a program that fits that you're trying to borrow the money for, you're out of luck, basically, if you're past your general obligation bonding authority. So this is a gap financing need that has been there for a long time. There's an existing program called Infrastructure Revolving Loan Fund that's $150 million. And this would this would tremendously increase that access. And that's the thing that, that, that local leaders need the most is once they're tapped out, their programs don't work and they still have projects to do, where do they go for that financing? So they ask for the 1% or 2% money for long amortizations, like 30 years type of amortization. And so that's what you'd be looking at to like help with gap financing for a flood control project for example and and that and that in our mind that makes more sense to put into a revolving fund loan environment because we don't know how long this legacy fund oil tax revenue inflow is going to be and once once that slows down we need to just rely on the earnings off the fund but um, to use a small portion of those earnings to repay a bonding package right now puts it to use and puts that spending in the ground today and get some of these large projects done Two more things, sir. Um, and I said this last night, it looks like some good news here for North Dakota, the active positives. And, and you always talk about the 14 day average positivity rate finally going in the right direction. I mentioned last night, it seems to somewhat coincide with the governor's mask mandate. What, what do you attribute this decrease in the positivity rate to? Well, I've said before, a lot of people would like to say that's exactly the reason, but I tell you what, it's we did, we did a lot for eight months before that point as well with being responsible with, look at how many cities had put in their own mass mandates to that point, 70% plus of the population was already covered. So the point is what we've been doing to this point has been effective. We've balanced our unemployment rates being one of the lowest in the nation. Our, our effect on our GDP has, although it's been hard, it's been, it's not as much as most. We've, we're, we're top five on both of those rankings. So we've kept our economy together as well as possible by having that light touch of government. And now to go to more, to go, go to more mitigation, like what happened in November was at the, was at the request of those hospitals that we're talking about earlier, Chris, with 
with being full, with, with seeing more and more COVID patients coming in at the top of that spike of that curve, there was a lot of panic from, from the hospital and healthcare providers. And so they were thankful that there was more mitigation, more seriousness. They felt put to the, put to that mitigation. And, and now we're, it's just a, it's just a great thing for us to see coming down the backside. Hopefully it's crested and we'll be, and we don't, hopefully we don't have a fourth spike. You know, it's something yeah. that Nobody knows what will happen in January, February, March. We know the vaccines coming is positive for, for everyone in the, in the country, being hopeful that, that that makes a difference. But also think about 70,000 plus North Dakotans have been positive and diagnosed positively, tested positive already. I mean, we're getting a lot of herd immunity built as well as we're going through this. So, so it's, it's hard to know what will happen this winter, but we feel good about the results to this point. So just to push back on that a little bit, Lieutenant Governor, I mean, we've had the highest death rate per capita, the highest Kate rate per capita. So how do you feel good about some of those results? And you just said a moment ago that a lot of the mitigation things are, are working effectively. So, the Chris, as we've talked before, a lot of those statistics are they're manipulated based on on percent of population and not giving any credit for the fact that North Dakota tests either number one or number two per capita. So with Rhode Island, it's either North Dakota or Rhode Island at all times of who tests the most. And think about the rationale of if another state tests somewhere between five and 10 times less than us, do you think they're going to, do you think they're going to find all the positives that are out there? Do you think that they're going to find all the fatalities where a person dies that they died from something else, but had a positive COVID test that that's a, that's a large function of how much that we test. And we're very proactive on that, trying to know where the, the viruses that in the different communities, et cetera. Um, so the, you know, the one that we like to, to point out is the fact is the positivity rate, the number of people taking a test is the best bar to, 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 to look at. And that Johns Hopkins seven day average is one that I'm usually sending you charts on that of how we're doing. And we were up to 10th on that list. Um, still you had states like Wisconsin that were far ahead of us that had mask man mandates for the whole time. And, um, you know, so we feel like a lot of the mitigation we were doing was successful, keeping us far below those higher positivity states. And we now we're down in 25, 26, 27 again. So we've really come back down in the middle of where we were before on the positivity of individuals uh, going and taking the tests. Last question, sir, is that I, I've been talking to legislators and this is going to be this is a tough one for you because where you sit, but I also know where you believe in. So they're telling me, hey, Chris, you know what, we're going to go into this legislative session and take a good, hard look at these emergency executive powers that the governor's had now for quite some time. Do you support these emergency executive powers and all the power it gives the executive branch or should there be some more check and balance on them? Well, there's, there's been a, quite a debate already, but to the point, <laughs> the, the debate that was happening wasn't enough to bring them back, you know, and you did see a lot of the states that continued through session, they actually sent their people home and didn't stay to fight the governor. So, I mean, there, there's always a push and pull between executive branch and the authoritarian, uh, pick, the picture of authoritarian <laughs> that they have for the governor compared to the legislature that's for the people, right? And that in the past, the laws and make the laws and, and there will be some conversation and some dialogue, but I, I can tell you, and you know that we've been in direct conversation with majority leaders, minority leaders the whole time and, and sometimes daily conversation with the majority leaders Rich Wardner, Chet Pollard. I mean, it's been very active dialogue. 